You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR community radio station. Uh, We've got a a bumper show today because uh, we're going to hear about uh, the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Are we really saving the uh, river? Uh, uh, based on a um, report that's come out of Environment Victoria, we've got a long way to go. Doomed without a drink. I had a chat with uh, Greg uh, Foster. He's the River Cam- Rivers Campaign Manager at the uh, Environment Victoria, and he had a chat with me about uh, this new report. Uh, Lyra Week from Techno Park Drive in Williamstown alerts us to the fact that uh, the uh, Hobson Bay Council has sent them all a letter telling them to uh, vacate their houses. Uh, hundreds of people w- uh, went down there at their last uh, council meeting to uh, tell them that uh, it just isn't on. That uh, in fact, oh well, fifty and uh, with a, a, a um, support. Uh, supporters, uh, including uh, 153 signatures, so I did inflate it a little bit, but they were just so um, aggrieved about the concept that uh, the council could tell them that they had to leave their homes immediately. It was quite bizarre. Uh, Maybe there's developers in the wings, who knows? But anyway, we had a chat with... uh, uh, Lara, about what's going on in Williamstown. Uh, this is the week that was. Ian Rindolt is going to give us some understanding of what's going on in Villawood. You would have been aware that there was an overdose death a couple of weeks ago and there's also been a fire. So the privately run uh, a detention centre for uh, 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 is... Uh, is in the news and the uh, it's becoming more and more uh, t- uh, terrible, in fact, for the people who are there. Uh, we're going to also talk to Lucy Horan from the Refugee Action Collective about their upcoming uh, event next Saturday. Uh, but before we do, uh, we uh, can hear some important information. Smith Street Dreaming is a special gathering of dancers and musicians that will honour elders, families and community through traditional ceremony in Fitzroy. Featuring Uncle Herb Patton, Arnie Janice Bakes, Jiri Jiri Dance Group, Morandaya Yapenya Dance Troupe, Bandok Dati, the Small Ant Brothers, Uncle Johnny Lovett, Lee Sunnyboy Morgan Show, Empath Soul and Firestarter Chris Hume. 
in Atherton Gardens, corner of Brunswick and Gertrude Streets, Fitzroy. Saturday, July 15th from 1 till 5pm with free barbecue and coffee on site and entry is free. Smith Street Dreaming is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria, the Smith Street Working Group, Leaps and Bounds Music Festival and Yarra City Council, a 3CR supporter. And if you're not going to Smith Street Dreaming, which sounds like a lovely thing to be doing, you might want to go over to um, <clears throat> Brunswick because there's a rally, community rally, no nuclear submarines, uh, fun essential services and real climate action. It's uh, been called by um, Socialist Alliance and a general community. There's going to be uh, speakers, Tim Reid, Greens MP for Brunswick, Sue Bolton, Mary Beck, Socialist Alliance, uh, Rita Camilleri, No Orcus, Victoria, and Pierre Moreau from the Australian Services Union and a former 3CR presenter on Asia-Pacific um, Currents. Asia Pacific currents. Uh, there's, um, it's going to be over in Sydney Road, and it's between uh, eleven to one. So you could get it in there before you come over for um, Smith Street Dreaming. That's a perfect way of uh, dealing with uh, your Saturday. Uh, you can go to the uh, website, uh, and you'll find that. Uh, uh, the, you go to uh, it's a it's a Facebook event, so you can find um, the information there for that particular event. Uh, the um, there's a couple of things that have happened just overnight. The uh, there was a forest activist uh, who has been given a prison sentence in Tasmania. I don't know the details, but uh, she vowed that she's going to continue to fight for the forest. She's been given several months. Uh, uh, imprisonment for her actions uh, and uh, it's uh, obviously uh, this is a big deal. This is part of the big turning points for uh, the fight for the forest. Uh, also Barack Be- Beacon in uh, public housing estate in Port Melbourne which uh, has uh, developers have uh, started to demolish despite the fact that VCAT hasn't actually handed down its ruling uh, there's been there's an occupation has been uh, called so uh, this is part of the public assets public housing bulldoze this is a big end of town make deals with developers and dress it up as a social housing and affordable housing but never solve the housing problem this is what's been going on. Also, uh, uh, on a happier note, uh, I went off and uh, watched uh, Animal Farm, this great production, theatrical production, which is on now at the moment at uh, uh, Northcote Town Hall uh, Art Centre. It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, if you have want to if, go to any theatre piece this, this year, go, make it Animal Farm. Look it up. You can find them on... Uh, of the websites and book a ticket. It really was really good. The performers are great and uh, it's a fantastic rendition which is brought up to date with an Australian kind of context at the end. Uh, all right, that's it. All the things I wanted to tell you before we uh, go to Doomed Without a Drink. I had a chat with Greg Foster. He's the Rivers Campaign Manager at uh, Environment Victoria. Doomed Without a Drink is telling us that... Um, 140 species, and we're talking birds, fish, grasses, um, 
frogs are all potentially endangered by the Victorian government's behaviour in regards to uh, uh, water clearances, uh, releases into the Murray-Darling water system. And uh, so let's hear what uh, Greg had to tell us about what's going on. The Murray-Darling Basin covers about 14% of the Australian mainland, running from Queensland down through New South Wales, Victoria to South Australia. What's interesting about it is it's Australia's largest river system, but compared to other river systems in other parts of the world, it's obviously not a very wide river, it's a very arid environment, and it's remarkably flat. So what that means is that when there are great flooding rains in the north of the system around New South Wales, Queensland, and that that water starts flowing down the river, it can spread across an enormous area of the floodplain. That's about 5.8 million hectares of wetland ecosystems across the Murray-Darling Basin. And towards the end of the basin, uh, when you get closer to South Australia, it's incredibly, it's an incredibly flat landscape. The other thing to know about the Murray-Darling Basin river system is Australia was originally an inland sea, so there's a lot of salt in the soil, and all that salt needs to be flushed out into the ocean Otherwise, you end up with a situation where you have higher salinity sort of slowly creeping up the river from the mouth of the river in South Australia, and that starts to affect everything from um, whether or not you can grow crops to the health of ecosystems. So that's why it's extremely important to flush the water fully out of the system. And, of course, if we've mismanaged the Murray-Darling and that water can't be flushed out, then the salt can't be flushed out. And that's why when you hear... um, some people uh, say, oh, we're irrigating the Southern Ocean. <laughs> They're just not understanding that we need to get the salt out of the system or we're, we're in, in trouble in decades to come. And it struck me when I was reading the report that we're here to talk about, Doomed Without a Drink, what's happening is that the different states are not looking at the river system as a whole they're looking at it from the point of view of the overlay of the uh, boundary state boundaries. They're looking at it from the point of view of their economic interests, not as a river system. That's right, and that's been the problem with managing the Murray-Darling Basin throughout Australian history. I mean, if you look at it from the beginning, um, obviously in the same way that land was stolen from First Nations, the water was stolen. So it was assumed that the water was just up for grabs and then the Australian states were set up. At the time, they probably couldn't imagine that that society would have the power to wreck an entire ecosystem and everybody just took what they could. They made important changes to the river that allowed for agriculture and for human society to exist. So we we shouldn't sort of... um, Obviously, that's important because they needed to create more regular um, sources of water. But there was no system-wide way of managing the river for a very long time and it led to some huge algal blooms uh, in the millennium drought and that led to the federal government under John Howard creating the Water Act and the intention of of that was to take over management of the Murray-Darling Basin system from the states because states like Victoria and New South Wales in particular had been... Um, allocating too much water from the river to irrigation. And as a result, during dry years, 
there was um, the beginning of a, the collapse of the ecosystem. Your organisation actually says that Victoria's current position on water policy in the basin is closer to that of Barnaby Joyce than a progressive Labor government. That's quite strong words, aren't they? Yes, and unfortunately it's true because the policy that the Victorian government has maintained for about 10 years was put in place during a period when Victoria had a coalition government and the National Party had the water portfolio uh, and it hasn't really changed. It's worth sort of going through the background. So what happened was that after the Water Act was created and then the Basin Plan was created and sort of during that period, Penny Wong, who was in the federal government at the time, started buying a lot of water and, and some of that came out of Victorian areas because those water entitlements are higher reliability. Uh, water that comes down through um, the Goulburn, for example, that was, quite a bit of that was bought up. And so people in those areas were upset by that. Then as a result, the Victorian government took this position against Commonwealth water purchases. And that, that position has existed for quite a long time. And the repercussions of that are that the alternatives to purchasing water um, to recover water for the environment are not very efficient or cost-effective and may in fact have uh, like repercussions. They're not actually delivering water to the environment. They may actually um, increase the amount of water that irrigators use through a rebound effect, which I won't go into. But um, essentially the Victorian government has maintained that position that the, they had under the uh, National Party for, for a long time. Actually, I want to go into some of those things that you're, you're talking about because the Victorian government's been quite uh, weasel wordily about it in the sense that I wanted to talk about things like failed offset projects and uh, this uh, floodplain engineering projects, the, you know, these grand names and even things like... Um, uh, some policies built around socio-economic tests. I mean, these are really, they're policies that are actually uh, delaying tactics around and uh, obscuring the um, need to save the river. Oh, absolutely. And it's worth starting with a broad view because sometimes describing what's going on in water policy is so technical that it puts people off. So I'd, I'd like to sort of start with a broad overview and then and then move into those details. Um, looking at it from a big picture perspective, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was intended to restore the river system to health, and in the in the legislation it says it should be based on the best available science. So that's actually a quote from the the legislation and what has what happened unfortunately was that it wasn't based on the best available science it was based on a political compromise um, and the amount of water that is in the plant is far lower than what's required to restore those ecosystems to health and the, the total amount of water is um, 3,200 gigalitres that's 3,200 billion litres gigalitres is billion billion litres um, and that's water to be returned to the environment on an annual basis. So it essentially means that irrigators and other human uses um, have 
3,200 billion litres less per year on average um, to return to the river. But that's not how it's worked in practice because there's been additional schemes put on top of that. So, for example, what you're referring to with the offset schemes is called sustainable diversion uh, adjustment mechanism. And the intention of that is instead of returning water to the environment, they have found a way to say that you can achieve the same environmental equivalence by placing infrastructure uh, on floodplains so that the water can, less water is is used for the environment, but it, it can be pumped into uh, wetlands or other floodplain areas. And that's a justification for not buying the water and returning it to the environment. Yeah. It's an yeah. offsetting process. Yeah, yeah. And, and even that thing about irrigation, that really made me angry. The idea that uh, they give money to, uh, basically they're subsidising what are large businesses, agribusinesses, to uh, maintain their irrigation systems, pretending that they're saving water. And we're just paying with public money for these big businesses to have irrigation systems. Yeah, you can see how... It's it really outrageous. Political sense, right? <laughs> so they said, look, the irrigators are using water. If if we upgrade their pipes um, and other irrigation, irrigation infrastructure, they'll use less water and those water savings could be counted towards the environment. But it hasn't worked that way for a oh, couple surprise, of reasons. surprise. <laughs> well, what if that um, any water that was previously lost during irrigation, in other words, water that leaked, um, that water would have returned to the environment through return flows. So it would have, you know, if it leaked out of a channel or, or an irrigation pipe, theoretically, it would have gone back into the river system at some point. And so that's not accounted for it. Irrigation becomes more efficient, um, but those savings aren't accounted for. The second one is that, as with most environmental things, there's a rebound effect. So to give an example, if you buy a more efficient appliance, you're more likely to use it, and therefore your, your overall electricity use is higher. That's, that's pretty well established in the environmental academic literature. It's called the rebound effect and it often applies to any attempt to increase efficiency. And so you have the same issue with increasing efficiency for irrigation. Uh, farmers, if they can irrigate more efficiently, they tend to buy more water. They can possibly even use more water overall because um, they get more value out of um, each megalitre of water. And so there have been studies that have shown that these on-farm efficiency projects can actually push up the price of water more than buying the water directly because farmers are willing to pay more for water if they can use it more efficiently. So there's, there's problems with them and they're not straightforward. Essentially, if you want to make it sort of easier to understand for your listeners, because one of the problems is it gets so complex that it really just turns the public off. Let's go back now. We're getting a picture of the human manipulation and economic uh, imperatives, so we can understand that. But we really, we're worried about the river, right? And doomed without a drink tells us quite clearly that the approach that the Victorian government's taking is threatening 140 
species with extinction. And this, I mean, this includes uh, iconic species such as the uh, Murray cod. Yeah, that's right. And we wanted to draw attention to this because whenever there's a debate about water in Australia, you have some very loud interest groups uh, in Parliament and across the country making a lot of noise. And what gets forgotten is um, all the animals and plants that need this water to survive. I mean, for them, this is actually a, a matter of life or death. They don't, uh, their, their future survival is dependent on adequate environmental flows in rivers and wetlands. And in fact, um, some of their needs for breeding, uh, reproducing can only be met in the current highly regulated river system by environmental flows, which means water that's been bought by the Commonwealth or a state and then is sent down the river and across floodplains and wetlands to help those species. So by denying the river those environmental flows, by blocking the Commonwealth from purchasing more water, the Victorian government is actually increasing the extinction risk for those species because they are dependent on, those, on that flowing water. That's the environment that, that they need to sustain uh, themselves. In fact, it was very interesting to read your report to actually look at the case studies because it makes it clear that the way humans operate is much too simple and rivers and nature are far more complicated. So yes. all those different species uh, and the way water operates over a, a, um, a wide uh, flowing um, floodplain at different times of the year has a big uh, effect on the uh, different species ability and we're talking about grasses and we're talking about birds and we're talking about fish and frogs they all require I mean even down to one of the frogs no longer being able to breed because dirt is now filling up the uh, little gaps that they would normally uh, be brushed away by the water. They can no longer find places to breed. Mm. Yeah, this is a theme that you see across a range of environmental issues, that ecosystems are incredibly complex. Animals and plants have evolved to certain conditions over a very long time. And then in the last couple of hundred years, especially with European colonisation of places like Australia, we've come in drastically altered those ecosystems um, and then in the last you know 50 years we've tried to correct for the damage that we've caused but our corrections um, are too simplistic because it is an incredibly complex system and so you know we're now in a situation where we have a regulated river and that's necessary we need to get water to towns we do need to grow food um, but we also want to keep these species alive and keep these incredible native animals alive. And we have to find clever ways of both delivering water for human use and um, giving, getting water to the right places at the right times, at the right depths, all these things um, for, for each species. You know, it's, it's, so, it's become so complex, whereas previously um, in that natural system, things would have happened naturally and the animals had, had adapted to that over a very long time. So, yeah, we're, we're, in a, we're in a tricky situation where we need to know enough about the species to be able to meet their, their needs for um, 
for their survival and their reproduction uh, and and have to get the water to certain places at certain times in order to do that. Well, it's interesting too that uh, it's not just a, um, a life and death uh, question. Um, I mean, that's it. But also, uh, and it's not just, a, you know, an environmental uh, Victoria's uh, wish list. The Victorian government has actually got legislation that requires it to actually be um, protecting species actively. Yeah, that's right. They do. Um, and a lot of state state governments do. The federal government does. Uh, I think there's often lip service p paid to that, uh, those obligations around biodiversity. You know, people say that we don't want any further extinctions and they might. And there are a range of recovery plans and action statements and a whole lot of um, government documentation about how they're going to save X species. But then they're still making decisions um, allowing, you know, development that would threaten the habitat of those species. So it often falls down at the point where um, uh, key decisions are, are made. We don't prioritise the environment. Well, the reason why you've brought out this uh, report right now is because uh, next month um, there's going to be a Murray-Darling Ministerial Council meeting and um, this is a do-or-die time, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So the Basin Plan has been going for 10 years. The Basin Plan is essentially the, the federal um, plan that we have to restore our rivers to health. It, it should largely be an environmental uh, plan. That's, that's the purpose of the Water Act. It's largely environmental. Um, and everything's coming to a head because the water... The additional water for the environment is supposed to be delivered by June next year. It's way behind. Uh, the, the latest estimate that I've seen is about four gigalitres of the 450 gigalitres has, is on track to be delivered, so it's way behind. And um, the decisions are going to be made in the next month or two because um, if they're going to change the legislation, they have to do it this year. They have to go through federal parliament, which means that the negotiations must be happening right now. So if we're going to save these species and make sure that they get enough water for, for their needs, then we have to raise our voices right now. That's why we're putting out this report and asking everybody to make some noise and put some pressure on the Victorian government. Yeah, well, there you go. Doomed without a drink. Environment Victoria's uh, River Cam Rivers Campaign Manager, Greg Foster, talking about uh, what's going on for the Murray-Darling Basin and what we need to do in order to uh, save 140 species for a long-term future. This is really important stuff. Uh, you're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Uh, I uh, neglected to tell you earlier about the actual place where you can meet uh, in Brunswick uh, for the community rally, No Nuclear Submarines, which is on at 11 a.m. this morning. It's at the corner of Wilson Avenue and Sydney Road. Corner of Wilson Avenue and Sydney Road. There's going to be a number of speakers, uh, including Tim Reid, uh, the M Greens MP for Brunswick, Sue Bolton, Mary Beck, Socialist Alliance, 
uh, Rita Camilleri, No Orcas, Victoria, and Pierre Moreau, Australian Services Union Delegate and State Council, uh, and several others, are going to be speaking to the uh, importance of no nuclear submarines and the need to fund essential services and real climate action. Brunswick Today, corner of Wilson Avenue and Sydney Road at 11am. You're on 3CR with Annie. Get to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter.
Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fridor Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on the 3CR. And you with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. On Tuesday night, uh, roughly 50 people protested outside a meeting of Hobson's Bay Council to stand against the mass eviction of up to 100 residents of Techno Park Drive in Williamstown. And uh, I spoke to Lara Week, who's a resident, about what is going on in Techno Park Drive in Williamstown. So, Lara, can you tell my listeners a little bit about what's been going on at Techno Park Drive and where it is and what it is? Yeah, sure. Um, people have been living at Techno Park uh, in Williamstown for many years, mostly in small brick units that were originally built to house migrants and refugees in the late 1960s. Um, they're residential buildings here mostly that we live in. The area was zoned Industrial 1 in 1988, but um, Hobson's Bay City Council chose to accept residential use since then. The community here exists because the council chose to accept residential use for all that time. Um, Residents here have built a life, made their homes, started families, and transformed Techno Park into um, a beautiful, green, and safe place. Many people have lived here for 10, 15 or 20 years and it's really a wonderful, very special community. Is it private rental or is it uh, another sort of arrangement? It's a combination. So everything here is privately owned. Um, I own my unit with my partner. Um, Some people here rent. We have one block in our street that uh, the whole block is owned by one couple and they have been renting out uh, units to people who need housing for very little money for about 20 years. One of one of my neighbours who lives there, he told me his rent is $100 a week. He's been there 14 years. Oh, that's fantastic. So obviously it is a community. Uh, what happened uh, recently? What did the council do recently? Um, in May, the council sent notices to every address in the street that directed residents to cease living in their homes immediately and threatening legal action against us. The notice said um, that if you'll experience hardship, you have to make yourself known to the council individually and they'll consider up to six months extension on your eviction. Um, residents who have done that have had vastly different experiences depending on who they are. One of my neighbours, who's a lawyer, he went, they said, oh, we're really sorry, it's terrible, there's nothing we can do, but we'll give you as much time as you need, we feel like jerks, you know. And um, another one of my neighbours, who's a renter here, who lived for seven and a half years in the Hobson's Bay Caravan Park, which is also was also on industrial land for more than 30 years, um, uh, when she called the council immediately, as they requested, she was told you have to get out in two weeks and then she was told, okay, we'll give you an extension, now you've got two months. She said it was one of the most degrading experiences of her life. So even though people privately own these properties uh, and the council has allowed people to live there as residential area, uh, why have they suddenly decided that you've all got to be evicted? How can they even do that? So the area is zoned Industrial 1. That means it's for storage and manufacturing that doesn't affect the safety of people or the environment. So, for example, on our street, as well as the housing, there's some storage 
There's um, a boutique coffee machine maker. There are some offices. Um, at the end of the street is the Corroy Creek and wetlands. Um, so the council would say uh, that you can still use your property if you wanted to, you know, use it as a storage facility, for example. Oh, I see. So what's led them to this decision at this time? We don't understand that. They had they had uh, said to people who made contact and they said in one of the letters to us, they were basically forced to do this because of the EPA and WorkSafe. Um, but uh, journalists since then have uh, gone to the EPA and WorkSafe to ask for comment. And WorkSafe said they had nothing to do with it, that they didn't even hear about it until council notified them later. And the EPA, I understand, has said that they don't have any record of any communication about it at all. So you you and uh, 50 people protested outside the meeting of Hobson's Bay Council last Tuesday. Can you tell me what the uh, um, effect of that uh, rally had on the council? Um, yes, yeah, so there was a, uh, a council meeting on Tuesday and we'd put in a petition asking the council to withdraw the eviction notices and to commit to meeting with residents ahead of the next council meeting in a month to find a solution. They basically said no. They said people can call individually as they've been told already and the council would refer them to services. We wonder what services were in a rental crisis and a cost of living crisis. The wait list for public housing is more than 20 years. You know, people have lived here in residential buildings in safe and secure homes in a community they love for decades. So who does it benefit to displace all these people and family from their homes and, and dump them onto already overwhelmed services. Um, who, who does it benefit in our community to have a street full of abandoned homes? Um, I would say the, the, the impact that the protest had is that it really showed residents um, who care very much for one another, how far that care extends into the community beyond Techno Park. The impact of the notice on the community here has been really severe. People are very distressed, you know, no one's sleeping, people aren't eating. They're really just full of fear for their future. Um, and so it's just been really meaningful to, to see and feel um, for people here that we're not alone. It's, it sounds very strange to me. I mean, it would, being a, uh, the sort of person I am, it makes me wonder if they have some lucrative offer for the land or something. Yeah, I mean, many people have been asking that same question. I don't, I, I just don't know. I feel like, you know, we can speak to our own experience and uh, what we do understand, but um, I just, that's kind of a mystery to all of us. Now, I mean, you've been residents there for a very long time. Uh, why mm. have your elected councillors not actually talked to you? Um, we've had one, one councillor, as soon as she learned about this, her name's Daria Callender, as soon as she learned about what was happening to us, she called, she said, I support you 100%. And uh, she's been absolutely consistent with with that support since then. Um, she tabled our petition 
and um, she's given us very kind of practical advice about how to, you know, how to write a strong petition, how to get it into the council. Um, yeah, so we have one one person on council who has given us her total support. Now, that sounds interesting to me in the sense that uh, once she heard about it, uh, it sounds like to me that the uh, uh, when you think about a council, you've got the um, uh, elected uh, councillors, but then you've also got the uh, the 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 commercial, uh, you know, the uh, practical mm -hmm. uh, side of it with their CEO and all the rest of it. So you got the letter from whom? Which part of the council did you get the letter from? From, from the from the planning department. From the planning department. So it's the business side of the council that's uh, done this. Um, and, right. and you've got the impression that the elected councillors were unaware of this until it was tabled at council. No, no. They were unaware of it when it first happened. And as soon as it happened, uh, community here made contact with the councillors. We've written to our local MP, Melissa Horn, who's also the... Um, the Minister for Local Government. Um, uh, so, no, they, they were well aware by the time the council meeting came around. Okay, and so what did the uh, state uh, representative have to say? Um, we have a meeting with her next week. We haven't heard yet from her directly. Uh, this just seems amazing to me that they can... Um, all you people are supposed to just go and find new places to live. Uh, and they're, they're saying originally it was like in two weeks you need to get out and vacate your homes. It's so bizarre. No, origin originally they said you have to leave today. Really? The, the notice said, I mean, I actually have the notice here. It's not very, um, no, the notice said you must cease residential use immediately my god it sounds like they think the ground is contaminated but people have been living there for over 30 years yeah i i, I mean they haven't said anything about the ground being contaminated i'm, I'm jumping they've to said, conclusion it just sounds like yeah, you know one thing they've said is that they believe it's dangerous for us to live here because we are adjacent to a mobile tank farm the age has reported that those tanks have been empty for years. There are mobile sites all over Hobson's Bay with homes directly next to them. The GEM Apartments, which are a new, new residential housing development in Williamstown on Point Gellibrand, are directly next to an active mobile terminal. They're in the same, it's what's called the inner advisory area of, of the terminal. It's exactly the same as, as we are here. That's an active site. These tanks are empty. On the other side of that tank, this tank farm here, there's a children's sport field that the council have just inve invested more than $4 million in upgrading. So wh where do you go? I know you now you're going to talk to the state uh, uh, member uh, and obviously now the uh, residents have decided that they're going to fight back. Yeah, we're getting legal advice. We should, we're getting legal advice uh, about what to do next. Um, and uh, we're really just trying to do our very best to care for the community here because the council have been so enormously reckless. To my, to my mind, 
the council have endangered people's lives. They talk about their moral obligation to keep us safe. At the council meeting, and um, the mayor has repeated in press that this is really, this is why they, they practically, they could change their zoning to allow us to remain here as we have been for many years, but it would be impossible because they have to keep us safe from the empty tank farm next door. What did they think would happen when they sent 100 letters to people's homes telling them that they had to leave immediately or face legal action? But does, it, doesn't e- Bay has it, it doesn't even make they, sense. No, they've, in, they've endangered people's lives. They've endangered people's lives by telling them to leave their home when many people do not have safe alternatives. There are people who, who did leave immediately and where did they go? We don't know. They've endangered people's lives by making threats against their home and security. I, I cannot believe that since, since everything was learned from robo-debt, that any government wouldn't know that when you make threats against people's livelihoods, you threaten their lives. I'm just uh, gobsmacked. I find this absolutely amazing. Um, the uh, fact that this was built to house... Uh, uh, immigrants in the 1960s and uh, were the mobile mobile tanks there at that time and they built those flats beside there at the same time yes yes yeah. they were the mobile the mobile tanks have been there were there previously um this block actually was migrant hostel also before these uh, units were built um since 1949 there's been a community of, of people living here and I would hazard a guess that the uh, council hasn't done any longitudinal studies into their health to be able to come up categorically with the fact that people who live in those areas are adversely affected. There, there is no claim from the council that you're in that you that you are in any that there are health consequences for looking next, living next to tanks. The, we're in what's called the inner advisory zone and the way that that is defined is it means that there's a, there's a risk of one fatality that is greater than one in 10 million years. <laughs> All right. Now, the other thing that I've So they're talking, so, so they're just talking about, a, you know, the risk of a major incident. They're not talking about long-term health risk. No one has ever said that. Um, people live next to all this mobile infrastructure all over Hobson's Bay. The other thing that's interesting in your release is that when people have rented there or you have bought there, um, none of the private uh, real estate uh, information actually told people about the industrial overlay. I don't know that that's true, that none of it did. Certainly media have found, you know, lots of examples of listings um, where it wasn't clear, you know, places that advertised with bedrooms and showers, um, you know, that obviously look residential and in many of the listings it hasn't been clear. But I think, you know, there are other things that convinced people that they could live here. Number one was that people had lived here for decades and there's a large community. Um Council's accepted payment for registration of pets at these addresses all over the years, you know. Um, uh, the zoning says you can have a home office here without any permit, which is confusing because it also says 
you can't have accommodation, but I think many people interpreted that to mean accommodation like a hotel or something was not permitted because a home office is permitted and obviously a home office is an office that you live in. Yeah. Um, but I would say, you know, one of my neighbours said the other day, one of, so uh, John Link who owns this whole block that he he lets out to at very affordable prices to many people, he said the other day, you know, we never even thought about the zoning. We just knew that people lived here in this street. We knew we had an empty building and we knew people needed homes. Oh, goodness, Lara. It's so weird. It's so weird. Um, well, good luck with your fight. And uh, what would you like people to do to to support your um, fight? Oh, thank you, Annie. We have, a, we have an online petition that people can sign. We understand that that's actually really useful to show that there is um, broad public support for us and that people are watching what's happening here. If you sign it, you'll forget our updates. Um, the website is www.change.org slash techno-park. Um, in the last four days, we have almost 900 people have signed that petition. Um, so that would be really helpful if people can do that. And we can also keep people posted through that about um, other ways that they'll be able to help. Thanks for talking to me, Lara. Thank you so much, Annie. Yeah, well, that was Lara uh, Week from uh, Techno Park Drive in Williamstown, the uh, high-handed action of the Hobson's Bay Council uh, has evicted uh, or is attempting to evict um, 100 residents from the uh, long-term residents of that area. Uh, and... Um, for, and I'll have to point out that the uh, furphy of using WorkSafe as a reason uh, was also the uh, uh, used when uh, the Collingwood uh, Children's Farm Steering Committee wanted to get rid of the uh, com Collingwood Community Gardeners who had been there for 40 years uh, because they had other plans. Uh, and it's a complete furphy. But uh, obviously uh, the people in suits uh, think that uh, this is a good way of defer diverting um, community outrage at their incredibly self-centred, self-aggrandising uh, behaviour. Uh, and as it was pointed out to me, um, it sounds like there might be a couple of developers in the wings in this instance. It's just outrageous stuff. You're on... Uh, uh, community Radio 3CR Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. A weak Solidarity Becky team listener when in a heinous abuse by those involved in politics the socialists are bringing politics into politics. An abuse of the political process to which we were alerted by that 100% reliable source and political innocent caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo Councillor Peter Duffer after the robo-debt commission concluded the caring business class, hayseed and cheap shit lot, had stuffed up big time. The government is, like, you know, making this political. Like, like Pete, robo-debt wasn't political. Like, devoted follower of the dear baby Jesus, love thy neighbour, former big supremo scummo, has never told a lie. Like that Stuart 
stuff everything up and Alan Fudge the Truth and Christian Portaloo were honourable men, acting honourably. As Shakespeare said, so are they all, all honourable men. Like the suffering and pain and deaths they caused was like a government not being political. The Shakespeare quote, of course, referred to a pack of murderers. Like Scubbo and Pete and the team ensuring the filthiest rich of the filthy rich got filthy richer, while ensuring the poorest of the poor paid for their poverty was not political. Reflecting Scubbo's Christian certainty that the filthy richer you are, the more God loves you. The poorer, the more God needs to punish you. So he was just doing the Christian thing. And what thanks? The commission claims he lied. I suppose the big question is, has he ever told the truth? Like he says he wasn't lying. See, he can't help himself. So, like, you know, Pete denounces the government bringing politics into politics, something politicians hate. Unlike the pink bats and smash the evil construction unions, her most gracious majesty commissions the caring business class not set up to avoid bringing politics into politics. In which, if it's capable of getting it through his head, perhaps Pete should contemplate on what goes around comes around. And now, a panacea. The Climate Club. Yes, much excitement, as Trubler was, he took yet another major step to counter climate change, if there is such a thing, by joining the Climate Club, announced proudly in Germany by big supremo Anthony Albing Uzi. Uh, so, Anthony, what will the Climate Club do to cut pollution? Uh, we will talk about it. The Climate Club will discuss it. Uh, yes, yes, good, but, but what will it do? I just told you we will discuss the uh, we will discuss the issue uh, the problems. Uh, uh, but but what else will it do about the problems? Uh, well, lots of things. It will discuss lots of things. Yes, yes. But what will it do to address fossil pollution? I keep telling you we will discuss it, and our unswerving commitment doesn't stop there. We will urge non-members of the climate club to discuss it as well. So there. The Climate Club will hold pollution at bay through lots of hot air, discussing pollution away. Hot air and pollute, but then grow a few trees. The Climate Club making the fossils shake at the knees. Oh, it's so exciting. Like the same exciting commitment at the recent nine-day Bond Climate Change Conference, which took eight days of discussion, obviously very important discussion, just to agree on an agenda for the nine days, which was supposed to lay the groundwork for the next combat conference in Abu Dhabi to be chaired by the Supremo of the National Oil Company. Great, real balance, great news for the planet. I was going to say real concern, but on reflection, that's true. Real concern that nothing happens to stop the fossils doing their bit for climate change, if there is. Making it difficult to understand how the UN of the US of the UN of the world supremo Antonio Guterres could suggest the fossils had been allowed to exert undue influence over climate talks. Countries are far off track in meeting climate promises and commitments. The climate agenda is being undermined, Guterres raved on.
At a time when we should be accelerating action, we are backtracking. Doesn't he know the Climate Club and the COPBAT conference under the chairpersonship of the Abu Dhabi oil industry can discuss all that? Perhaps that should be chairperson oil tankership. Although on the backtracking bit, the community altruism of the fossil giants has risen yet again, come to the rescue as they point out that clearly upsetting them deeply, yet nothing to do with them, but true blue was he is literally miles behind, or well, kilometres behind, in providing the transmission infrastructure to allow the transition to renewables, in turn delaying investment in renewables. Now impossible, they say, to reach our 2030 targets, but the big-hearted fossil behemoths have offered the solution. More and more fossils. Not that they really needed to offer this generous contribution to community and global welfare. The socialists have already worked out that the best way to reach their fossil reduction target is to approve more and more fossils. Indeed, Santosas, the prophet supremo Kevin Yorgalabaler, this week informed us the International Energy Agency's Net Zero Emissions Report had direct quote, listener, direct quote, slowed the transition away from fossil fuels because it gave activists ammunition to campaign against gas developments that would help with decarbonisation. <laughs> no, no, no idea, listener. I'll, I'll leave you to think that one through. But it must be true, because no more reliable a figure than Woodside with Profit Supremo, Peg O'Neill before fossils, backed him up, shared his concern. And if that hasn't convinced us, the True Blue Aussie Minerals Profits Council Supremo Tania Con Stabilised Profits wrote a whole article telling us mining is True Blue Aussie's once-in-a-generation net-zero opportunity. Indeed, without mining, True Blue Aussie would be an economic backwater, unable to provide any public services of any sort, she wrote. So thank goodness we're in safe and responsible hands like Kevin and Peg and Tania and not in the hands of damaging destructive forces like those activists holding up the transition by opposing that from which we are supposed to be transitioning. Kevin did say the fact that that report's net zero target was already years behind meant fossils would be around for years and years. Uh, Kevin, the, the failure to reach those targets wouldn't have anything to do with people like you, would it? No, no, silly thought. Wash your mouth out, Kevin. That's me, Kevin, not all care for the planet. Him, Kevin. The sheer common sense of the US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, refusing to sign any of these namby-pamby, long-haired, commie, greedy international bans on the lawful train-killer merchandise of the merchants of death, Fun, 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 toys for the boys like landmines and chemicals and dum-dum bullets and peace-loving nuclear bombs. And yes, thank goodness they eschewed a ban on cluster bombs because now they can send them off to their very, very, very good friend Ukraine. Something strange happened there. True Blue Aussie signed the ban. What happened? Our, our orders from the US must have got lost off to Ukraine and totally justified because the US OB says evil Russia is employing cluster bombs which hang around for decades killing and maiming 
<laughs> so if it's good enough for evil Russia, it's good enough for the good upholder of world order, the U.S. of. Even though evil, evil Russia denies it, has used them, but we all know they lie about everything. While the U.S. of, which says they have used them, would never, never, never lie about anything Seriously, which one do we believe? Although US of big supremo Joe Biden Capital said it was a difficult decision because cluster bombs equal huge civilian casualties, but Ukraine had agreed to use the bombs carefully. Oh, good. Well, that's okay then. Other than uh, Joe might explain how you use a cluster bomb carefully. Well, he must know, because the US of would never act irresponsibly in the tranquil department. But as the lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy pour trillions of dollars of tranquiller merchandise into Ukraine, grateful Ukraine cries foul. It needs more, more, more. That's not enough. Come on, come on, give us more. Thanks, but no thanks. And when the his most gracious majesty home country trained killer minister questioned this as ingratitude. Ukraine supremo Volody more, more, more Zelensky was stunned. Where did that come from? What brought that on? He interrupted an eternal plea for the world to send him all its weapons. And one commentator commentated, who would have thought of this? The big winners from all this are the merchants of death. All's well with the world. Although all's not well in the world of reserve losses, Bank Supremo, soon to be ex-Supremo, Philip Wayworkers Low, who was himself laid low. But while we feel for poor Phil, we can take solace in the absolute knowledge that one Supremo devoted to preserving the greatest little economic order of them all, the delicate flower of the economy, will be replaced by another Supremo devoted to preserving same. We won't notice the difference. Pew! Now, more sad news. In the Dutterdale hard bleed for the department, the poor, poor Cook Casino, agreeing to a $450 million fine for being Cook, but telling his honour the agreement can only proceed if it can pay it off over two years in interest-free instalments. The holder of a private mint licence told the court it can't afford to cop up the money in one hit prompting the bench to whip out the calculator and calculate that the generous crook proposal would see the struggling private mint many millions better off than if it paid it now. He has reserved his decision on whether to approve the deal. Let's hope he shows some sympathy for the crooks at crook. In the non-news department, yet another report that overseas students are being ripped off by big, big time by caring employers paying them a pittance per hour. What's news there? There'll only be news if they stop ripping them off. And finally, the big Aussie of which we're all so proud, BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, has asked the High Court on behalf of many caring employers to overthrow a federal court ruling that it breached the law by forcing workers to turn up on Christmas Day and Boxing Day. That it can request but not require wage slaves, or sorry, workers, to work on public holidays. Disgraceful. Workers having a life would make life impossible. It is logic.
the big Aussie good enough to give them a job, and the lazy Aborigines bludgers think they can have a private life, personal time. Shame. Good morning. Hey, y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown, and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're going to talk to Ian Rintoll from, uh, about what's going on at Villawood. G'day, Ian. How are you? Yeah, morning, Annie. Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Well, Villawood has, uh, the detention centre has entered into the news again uh, with some really horrendous sort of uh, things going on. Can we first touch on the overdose death that happened a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, well, that's a village, you know, tragic circumstances. You know, young, a young African uh, guy got, uh, you know, kids and family outside. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he was found dead in his room. You know, pretty clearly is from an overdose. But it just it highlights, I think, two things. I mean, one is just the ongoing atrocity of keeping people in the detention centres. Um, many people go in there uh, for... No, well, not many people. There's no reason for them. People who... They are there for visa cancellations, are simply there because they're non-citizens. It's really just a racist application of the Migration Act, which allows the government to keep people in immigration detention even when they've, you know, finished any uh, any prison time uh, that they they may have uh, may have had under the criminal justice system. So it really is a form of extrajudicial punishment. But it's also highlighted just the extent to which, you know, drugs are, are rife uh, inside the detention centres. Not just Villawood, it's every, it's every detention centre. And for, you know, obvious reasons, uh, you've got a hell of a lot of despair inside. Uh, you've got a ready market and you've got, uh, you know, people in terms of the, the guards, there's no question of how it comes in and out of the detention centre that are quite happy to, you know, make a buck uh, out of those, uh, out of that despair. And it also, serves to, they turn a blind eye because it uh, you know, keeps people compliant. So it's really a disgusting situation. Yeah, it is a disgusting situation. Uh, what Because it's run by a private company, what's the uh, um, uh, duty of care and uh, the uh, over, oversight in this sort of situation? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, there's really very little you know, duty of care, although there is a Commonwealth Court case uh, happening at the moment which is directed against uh, their own uh, you know, border force, the Department of you know, Home Affairs, and also against uh, the IHMS, the medical provider. Uh, that was over a, a suicide uh, in similar, similar circumstances, I guess, in uh, 2019. You know, and but uh, Serco not immediately caught up in that uh, in in that court case, uh, but um, I mean, I think the thing is, with, with, there have been so many instances over so many years which have highlighted, you know, the extent to which there are drugs in the detention centres, but very, very little has been done about it. I mean, occasionally you'll get a, you know, big, big announcement of some, you know, raid on some particular, you know, detention centre, but it, uh, it, it simply doesn't address the underlying problem. You know, Annie. I mean, they, the, the, the truth is, the authorities just turn a blind eye for the reasons, as I said, you know, that. Uh, and for similar reasons, sometimes the prisons have been you know, subject to the same kind of thing. The, uh, the presence of the drugs you know, keeps people under control. It results in you know, internal divisions inside the, you know, the detention centre. People are focused on trying to you know, score drugs or settle 
Um, the um, the fire at Villawood, recent fire at Villawood. What happened? Hello. Hello. Are you there? Oh, sounds like he's uh, disappeared. I'll see if I can find him again. Let us sit and be as one And give our thanks for the trees and sun Through light and leaves the air we breathe is crafted The most important things we know Were felt by people long ago The past and present weave us like a basket Over and under And we're back in um, the fire at Billawood. What happened? Yeah, it's not exactly clear, um, Annie, but uh, it was in the Trobe compound and um, you know, it was quite well around 9.30 the other morning and uh, it, looks, it does look like the fire was set in a, a mattress, but uh, that only comes from the you know, reports I've seen in the newspapers. I've not been able to get any direct information from inside uh, La Trobe, but it's a very concerning situation. I mean, for similar reasons, actually, regardless of you know, why people are there, they should be, they should be safe. And, uh, and it was quite, you know, a quite concerning situation where um, huge, huge amounts of black smoke. Uh, there were difficulties getting people evacuated. Some people had to jump, you know, out the uh, out the window um, at risk of life and limb, you know, to get, uh, you know, to get to safety. And um, and, and we know that some of the uh, fire doors inside La Trobe, and not just in La Trobe, other other compounds inside the detention centre, some of the fire doors are closed. So. Um, for you know whatever the initial cause of the fire, I think we need you know a very proper inquiry and uh, you know proper fire you know orders of the place. Yeah, it sounds like Serco's a well-oiled machine. My God, that's just horrendous. Yeah, yeah, no, there's no oil on the machine. Uh, that's uh, it's you know the the public except except in terms of the detention, it's a well-oiled detention regime, but. Um, the uh, you know the closure of the fly doors. The thing is for them, you know, the security comes. You know, that's that's what they put first, and uh, that means you know keeping fly doors closed, even in spite of there being signs on the doors saying you know not to be closed, but they are, but they are, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that that's uh, that's the way they you know it's the way they operate. Uh, so you know, like it's not just a matter of um, you know concern about the immediate situation. Like I said, we need a a proper inquiry, um, but again, it highlights what you know. What the point I make really: the the detention centres shouldn't be there. I mean, there are fires because of the, you know, the desperation uh, in in many many cases. There are fires because the place is, you know, is unsafe. Uh, the thing is, I think we need to look at the wider, you know, the wider picture. Really, the use of section, you know, five hundred one. People are in in detention for longer terms, very often than for anything that they've been uh, sentenced to. And as I said before, it is just the the ability to use Section 5 of the Migration Act against you know, non-citizens. So it's a, an explicitly you know racist 
you know, section of the Act which, you know, the Labor government should, uh, you know, should repeal. Uh, there's meant to be a review into, you know, the holding, you know, fibre ones in the in in detention, but that review is progressing very very slowly and with uh, you know very little obvious results. Dare I say it that um, <clears throat> having the private companies uh, running these things, uh, whose uh, profits are based on filling their cells, uh, that it would is a bit like having. Um, armaments company uh, needing to have war. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think it's a, a reasonable uh, comparison. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's not... Uh it's not past uh, you know observation before that uh, for whatever reason there's a pretty much consistent population in in the uh, the you know the mainland detention regime. No matter what happens, we get usually got around you know thirteen hundred to fourteen hundred you know people, um, and it's very hard to conclude that that's other than for contractual uh, purposes. And I mean, Circo obviously got control of a certain amount of uh, you know, facilities to accommodate people and um, the authorities will widely obviously operate to you know, keep those uh, detention centres pretty much full. And, um, you, know, you know, I mean, again, it's just a way in which the, you know, the corporate interests, you know, override anything about, you know, humanity or justice. Um, how easy is it for a person like you as a uh, refugee activist uh, and uh, advocate uh, to actually go into Villawood? Uh, well, look, you can visit. Um, it's, it's not it's not made easy to visit. You've got to have the details of a particular person. Uh, but the visiting the visiting arrangements have become much more restrictive uh, over the years, and not not just because of COVID. I mean, now you can only visit you know one person at one time uh, for you know one hour, which means the kind of things that we used to be able to do, you know, to go into a detention centre and meet. Yeah, you know, four or five or six, sometimes more than that. Uh, you know, people in you know in one visit. Now you've got to go in, visit one person, go out, come back in, go through all the same security, you know, palaver, as well as actually lining up the visits. You've got to arrange the visits five days ahead through an IMI account. Um, look, it is very, very difficult uh, for uh, you know people who are inside. It's not just a question of refugee advocates, uh, you know, and legal people. It's you know it's very, very restrictive for the possibilities of you know families, you know, to get into have you know useful you know useful visits and uh, and that's it's come about because of, Scott Morrison gave uh, overall management of the detention centres to uh, you know border force and they've become in, they've been increasingly militarised. I mean people aren't in there for any criminal criminal penalty. It is administrative uh, detention. They're simply in there while their you know uh, arrangements are made about their visa determination or you know the removal uh, you know of particular people. But they're not. But they're not. You know, criminals in that, you know, in that sense, it's not a, it's not, it's not meant to be a judicial, you know, punishment. Um, and even though, you know, we've been to the High Court on a number of occasions because, because it obviously is, nonetheless, the, the fiction uh, under the legislation and its administrative detention, um, you know, continues. But the reality is, you know, the, it's, you know, it's stainless steel. The seats are bolted to the floor. You know, there are, you know, very, you know, very stringent restrictions on. Yeah, the possibility of uh, visits to make uh, life as difficult as possible for people who are in the detention centres. Thanks for talking to us this morning. Um, it's pretty grim, eh? Yeah, it is, Andy. We've still got a battle against uh, the Labor government. The detention centres have you know, still got to go. Thanks, mate. Bye. Bye-bye.
I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Lucy Huran from the Refugee Action Collective on the line. G'day, Lucy. How are you? Hi, Annie. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. Um, I've had a rather sobering um, program today. We've just been talking to Ian Rindle about uh, Villawood and what's been going on there, but it's a perfect, uh. yeah, perfect segue to the event that's coming up on next Saturday. For, yep. Yeah. Do you want to tell Definitely. my listeners about what's going on? I'd love to. So um, next Saturday we're having a rally. It's the 10-year anniversary of offshore detention. So 10 years since Kevin Raj reopened offshore detention camps and told refugees who were sending to PNG that they would never set foot in Australia. Um, so it's a um, um, uh, sort of dark... <laughs> A dark commemoration, as you said, that this has been um, bipartisan policy for 10 years now and, you know, the Labor Party has definitely um, cemented it since their re-election. They have asserted and reasserted that Operation Sovereign Borders, you know, boat towbacks, um, uh, offshore detention and the architecture of it um, and refusing to let any of those people who were sent offshore ever resettle permanently in Australia, that's you know, they've reasserted that that's definitely their policy. Um, at the same time, we can see evidence of the movement's impacts. They've had to essentially empty Nauru um, and many uh, many refugees recently got permanent protection visas who were on temporary protection visas. So we've had some gains over the 10 years, but we haven't defeated um, offshore detention and there's so much more to do. So that's why we'll be rallying um, 2pm State Library uh, next Saturday. But, but one of the most important um, uh, features of this particular rally, I guess, will be the uh, some people, as you say, have gone from uh, temporary protection visas to permanent protection visas, but there's a whole sway of people that did not get uh, protection Correct. visas. And yeah. that, that means, of course, that people of this nature... I mean, people don't realise how draining being on a um, temporary protection visa really is, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's horrific, actually. And people have talked about... So there's two cohorts, well, you know, two main cohorts that um, have been completely uh, left out of the permanent protection visa um, uh, resolution process. Um, there's about 12,000 people. Um, one is the group that I've already mentioned, those who spent any time in offshore detention. So these are people who are randomly picked off boats, as far as we can tell. Often they came on the same boat as somebody who's ended up with a permanent protection visa. But these people were sent to Nauru or Manus Island and told, you know, they were being punished for having got on that boat to seek protection. They spent their years um, in that offshore hell being told they would never set foot in Australia. And when they finally set foot in Australia, um, they've been told you'll never, ever resettle here. So um, that's 
that's a big cohort of people. That includes children. That includes extremely sick people, um, extremely traumatised people. But then there's another cohort of people, also uh, some of whom were on the same boat. Some some pe- sometimes people in the same family have ended up with different visas. Um, so this group of people were subject to the fast track um, processing system, so called. Um, it was uh, uh, introduced by the coalition government. Um, and it is basically a, a, a terrible, terrible um, uh, undermining of people's rights to a proper refugee um, recognition process. So it, it's kind of overturned the pattern of recognising refugees from certain countries to being a very um, a short interview, a quick interview where... Um, you know, people are essentially told, no, you're not a refugee, uh, dismissed and then given no proper opportunity to make their case um, so people can make um, applications to uh, administrative appeals and then the High Court. But that has taken, that has tied up and um, left people in, in limbo for, for years. And there's 12,000 people in that situation. They have no permanency. They don't have access to Centrelink. Their kids don't have access um, often to, well, any at any point to NDIS, to um, childcare subsidies. Um, they're, they're in a very, very difficult position. Some of them have work rights. But those who do have work rights often find that their employer is uh, distrusting of the fact that they don't have a permanent visa, so they face work discrimination, no access to um, tertiary education um, support, so huge discrimination in the education sector, um, and and they are living as and, and feel as though they're being treated as you know second class citizens, which is exactly they're not even being treated as citizens or being given the opportunity to be on a pathway to citizenship. So a lot of those people are in, in a terrible state and um, talk about it as though this this is a prison of its own because of the poverty and the exclusion and discrimination. The 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 sense of being still imprisoned is there. They also have to uh, renew their visas on a continuous basis. Correct. So uh, some of these people are on bridging visas, um, and the bridging visas can... I mean, they're they're kind of um, of varying lengths, but some of them are on a six-month basis. And so every time the visa runs out, um, there is the opportunity to fall through cracks again, so what we found, for example, is that people have um, had access, they do have access to Medicare um, through um, bridging visas, but when their visa runs out, they don't. And so there are big periods of time where they have to reapply. They get their new visa and then reapply for um, a new um, Medicare no, card. No. And in that period of time, they don't have access to Medicare. Oh, that's but horrendous. That's just... Awful. It's appalling. Yeah. yeah, no, it's yeah. just awful. It's just that I, I was really struck by the practical awfulness of it, as much yeah. as the um, of huge awfulness, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, just levels and levels of um, built-in bureaucratic nastiness, and yeah, and then I guess the flight. It's intentional. It's it's very intentional. The whole. Um, 
the exclusiveness of it. Sorry, I've got a little person calling. Yeah, that's exactly away. right. Well, we'll we'll end we'll end up quickly. Um, I know it's been endorsed. This rally's been endorsed by a lot of people, including yeah. the Victorian Trades Hall, the Greens, the Amnesty International, the Am- Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. I can't go through them all, but uh, there's uh, there's a lot of endorsees. Um, yeah. Tell tell my listeners again about when it's on and where. It's it's two p.m. State Library next Saturday, and I think this look. It is really good that we've had so many endorsements because I think the sad truth is that people think with Labor elected, refugee issues have gone. You know, they're so they were so associated with Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton that I think people think, well, you know, they freed Bill Oila. You know, that, that it's done. But but the truth of it is almost almost the exact opposite. It's so now. Um, cemented into Australian politics. It's so bipartisan. It is so much a part of Labor Party policy now that um, that it's normal to uh, be this inhumane and, and dehumanising of refugees who seek asylum by boat. Um, that I think we, it's 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 almost more imperative that we're out on the streets exposing how much of this system is still in place. And just one more thing that I wanted to mention, people think that offshore detention is over, but there's 82 refugees in Papua New Guinea who are completely abandoned by the Australian government. Um, They have no pathway to anywhere and they're in this horrific catch-22 where the UNHCR has said, we'll give you a, um, you know, if you engage with us, then, um, you know, we'll organise a, you know, a pathway to a third country because, you know, even the UNHCR, slow and ridiculous and conservative as it is, noticed that, you know, there's this this, um, cohort of people who have been completely abandoned. Um, But they are so sick, so unwell, some of them, so abused by their decade of um, detention in um, Papua New Guinea that many of them can't engage in um, in a mentally well way with that process. So UNHCR's solution is like Australia's to just leave them. And it is really a, a humanitarian crisis there that, um, you know, Australia has forgotten and, and we can't. We can't forget those people. There are 82 of them. And they need they need our um, solidarity and resistance. So we'll be we'll be raising attention about them too. Thanks, Lucy, for talking to us Thanks, this morning. Thanks, No Hope worries. Hope to see all of your listeners two p.m. next Saturday at the State Library. And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast. We're right at the line. Uh, I can't even tell you what we had on this morning, but uh, I'll put all the links on the podcast for uh, all the things that you need to uh, know about. Uh, Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents and we'll go out with uh, Talking Heads because I've got a feeling that Talking Heads were prescient about the madness that we're in the middle of life during wartime.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.